Okay, in November, we were in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, because I went to school a long time ago, back in the old days, 3 comes after 2. I'm not sure about it anymore with the new math. But I do want to pick up in chapter 2, verse 16, and I'll go ahead and read through the end of, all the way through chapter 3. But since we are torn away from you, brothers, for a short time in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face, because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith, that no one be moved by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we were destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we are to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass, and just as you know." For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before God, our God and Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. O oh Lord God, we open your word oh, with such joy, for we would feed upon your word. We hunger and thirst for righteousness. We desire to be more and more conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Thank you for this revelation of you, our God, to to know your glory, to know your way, to know what you would require of us, O Lord God, and how we should live before you. Teach us, give us grace and encouragement this day. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, quite a number of years ago, PCA pastor Jack Miller, who was at the time I'm referring to, he was professor of practical theology, I believe, at Westminster Seminary, a little before my day. Not much, but a little bit. And uh, Dr. Miller went to the esteemed Dr. Cornelius Van Til, if you know that name, one of the great apologists of the 20th century. And so uh, Miller went to Van Til following a faculty meeting, and he asked him, how is it with your soul? That's not a question we ask one another very often, maybe ever. So let me ask you, 
How is it with your soul? How is it with your faith and love? We all look great on the outside, right? Dressed up, we look good. But how is it inside? How is your faith? And that's what Paul needed to know about the Thessalonians. The apostle to the Gentiles was, of course, a a true shepherd, a wonderful shepherd, a good overseer to many saints. And he deeply cared for his converts, his children in the faith, so to speak. And these Thessalonians, for sure, he mentioned back in chapter 2, verse 8, that uh, we were ready to share with you not just the gospel, but our very selves because you had become so dear to us. And in other times as well, he speaks of his affection for them, his desire for uh, his concern about their welfare. Now remember that Paul had been forced to leave the Thessalonians after just a very short ministry. Paul sometimes spent months in a church. He spent about 18 months in Corinth. He spent actually about three years in Ephesus, but he could only be in Thessalonica for a few weeks. So this was a, a very young church, especially considering this letter was written not too long after Paul left. It was actually after he heard the good news from Timothy. But not only had Paul left way too soon, uh, the opposition that forced Paul to leave had then come back upon the church, and these new believers were having to deal an opposition, a, a persecution, an affliction that they were not ready for. And Paul was concerned. They were way too young to be left on their own. I hear that in, in South America, and I'm sure other places as well, but I hear, I've heard in the past that in South America there are thousands of street kids, kids on the streets, on their own, no family, no parents, uh, no home to protect them, uh, nothing but their own wits, their own ability to, to beg and steal. And these kids are in obviously great danger because they're on their own uh, way too early. They're, and they're forced to live a life that would be a challenge even for a lot of adults. And so the Thessalonians were a bit like that, okay? Spiritually, of course, they were without their, their parent, their father in the faith, uh, for two uh, at way too young of an age. And they were forced to deal these these struggles, okay? So Paul was worried about them. Would their faith and their hope and their love, of which he spoke earlier, would that survive the challenge that they were facing? I imagine those of you who have grown kids at this time can remember the very first time you sent one of your children off on his or her own without the oversight and the protection of the parents, right? Uh, for us, we sent our eldest daughter down to Mexico on a missions trip for two weeks. I believe that was the first time she was on her own. And she was, by that time, 16 and, and fairly capable. But we were not, this is even before modern days of, of easier communications, but regardless, we were not allowed to contact her, right? What? Are you serious? She was not allowed to contact us. And so you wonder, yeah, how's she doing in this foreign country? Maybe it's just across the border, but it's a foreign country. I've been there. It's a very different place. You know, was our daughter safe? You want to know. You don't really know for sure. Unfortunately for us, no news was 
good news, but you get the idea. And so Paul had to send someone back to Thessalonica to find out how they were faring. And so he sent Timothy, we're told, to, to encourage the church and to help the church and to, to strengthen the church. Paul said to learn about your faith. In fact, he refers to their faith five times in just ten verses. Faith is so important, as you well know. Uh, to have faith, as we speak about frequently, is obviously to believe. Okay. In fact, we are called, we call ourselves, and we are called believers. Those who believe the Gospel. Those who believe the Word of God. Okay. Those who believe the words and promises of Christ and take no confidence whatsoever in anything else. So faith is essential to a healthy soul. Consider Paul's uh, famous words to the Romans, the theme of Romans, the just or the righteous shall what? Live by faith. Thank you. Or think of John's well-known words uh, toward the end of his gospel, the, the fourth gospel, when he was referring to the many signs that Jesus did. Jesus did countless signs, and I suppose not all the books in the world could contain a record of all these signs. He says, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by, by believing, you may have life in His name. Faith leads to life. And so without faith, there can be no life, no spiritual life. One of the great solas. Sola fide, right? Sola, uh, faith alone. So Paul sent Timothy to establish and to exhort them in their faith. What really concerned Paul was, were they continuing to believe the gospel they heard? Or would they turn away as the Galatians had? Now, the chief threat they faced at this time as young believers was persecution, the opposition of, of, Gentile, of the Gentiles and perhaps Jews as well against their faith. And perhaps some, Paul might have been concerned, perhaps some would, would fall away, would abandon faith. Now, we're blessed in the sense... I'm not always convinced this is a blessing, actually, but we think it is, that we meet in peace. We are generally not threatened in this country as believers by persecution from outside. That's not an issue we really have to deal with at this time in this country. That might change, but not at this time. Nevertheless, there are many manifold uh, temptations that can cause us, at least tempt us, to stray from Christ. We know that John spoke of lust of the flesh and lust of the eyes and the pride of life. The world certainly is a temptation and we can abandon Christ even if we don't know about it. We can be like the frog in the kettle, uh, slowly boiling to death when we don't even know about it. But the fact is, many who begin this journey we call the Christian life, they don't. Finish. Many don't. Many start. They seem to start well, but they don't finish. And the New Testament addresses this often, many times, in fact. And Jesus addressed it sort of in, in his parable of, I like to call it the parable of the four soils. Sometimes it's called the parable of the sower. And Jesus told a parable of, of a sower, of a, of a man scattering seed, okay, on ground and hoping for 
hoping for a harvest. And the first seed, you remember, there are four kinds of soils. And the seed first fell on uh, along the path where the birds were able to, to find it and eat it. The second uh, soil was, a, was rocky ground. It was uh, poor soil. And the seed germinated for a while and began to grow for a while. But the soil wasn't deep enough to keep the plant alive in the hot sun. The third soil was uh, a thorny soil, and the seed fell among those thorns, and it began to grow as well, but eventually the thorns choked the life out of it. And the fourth, of course, was the good soil, where the seed germinated, it grew, and it produced this abundant crop. And so Jesus interpreted for his disciples and for us as well exactly what that meant. Uh, They were clueless, as we so often are as well. And he told us that the birds represent the evil one. When the word is sown, the, the evil one snatches that word away, so to speak, and it doesn't even remain in the, in the thoughts of, of those who are like that. The second one is uh, where the seed fell on rocky ground, the poor soil. And there, again, there's some growth. But when affliction comes, then, hey, I'm out of here. I'm gone, which is really what the Thessalonians were, were enduring, right? The affliction from outside. And the third, the third soil was that uh, thorny soil, and there were the cares of the world uh, choked out the faith and people fall away, perhaps like someone building a house and just walking away in the middle and just abandoning that house, and it sits there, this half-built house. You've seen some of those occasionally. So these four kinds of soil, two of them produce a, a crop for at least a little while, but they don't endure, right? One doesn't produce a crop at all. Two begin, but they fall away. Like those that we, we read about in the Gospels that follow Jesus because, hey, we can get a free meal out of this. He gives bread and fish and water and all this good stuff. And he does these amazing signs. We get a thrill out of these signs that he's doing. But then he starts, well, teaching hard things. And they say, you know what? Nah, I didn't, I didn't sign up for this. This is nonsense. There was even one among them, among the twelve, you know, his name, Judas, who betrayed Jesus. He followed Jesus like the others did for a time out of self-interest, we're told. Well, the Pharisees also, they stood out as, as those who seemed to believe in God. They were intensely religious, of course. They read the Old Testament. They read the Scriptures of that day. They seemed to believe in God. But Jesus revealed that their religion was really one of just arrogant self-exaltation. Okay? They had the appearance of faith in God, they had the appearance of a, of a godliness, of a, of a love for scriptures, but that's all it was. It was just an appearance. Jesus said to them, you, ap- you outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. You know what a hypo- hypocrite is, right? In terms of etymology, hypocrites like... You've been to an opera 
or some sort of play where, where they wear a mask, right? And they hold a mask up. Back in the old days, they hold a mask up to their face. And they're play-acting, they're role-playing. They're, they're pretending to be someone else, whoever that mask is, but it's not them. That's what a hypocrite is, okay? A hypocrite is a play-actor, someone who, who pretends to be something he or she is not. Well, it's easy, of course, to put on an appearance. It's easy to play the hypocrite. We, uh, we can do that quite well. Remember Ann Landers? Uh, back growing up, my, my parents got a paper, and, and I think I read Ann Landers every day for some incredibly stupid reason I can't understand at this point. But she received a letter once from a wife, and this particular woman, she was ready to get rid of her husband. And she said, you know what, I'm just going to offer my husband to whoever out there, whoever wants him. And so, you know, this is an ad for something. So she had a list of good qualities, right? And so, she, so this woman said, well, he's a good family man. He's church going. He's in excellent physical condition. And he doesn't drink, smoke, or chew. Impressive, right? Hey, maybe he should be on the session. He's ready to be an elder. He's a good guy, right? Well, okay, so the woman, she was an honest woman as well. And so she needed to, to list, well, maybe some of his, well, less desirable characteristics as well, okay? So she said, well, he's also mean, selfish, critical, deceitful, miserly, demanding, rude, vain, inflexible, unforgiving. He sucks the joy out of life on a daily basis. Any takers? <laughs> now, nah, none of us are that way, I'm sure. I mean, stop looking at your spouse. Don't look next door. You see, we make, we make good Pharisees because we are naturally very proud and, and, and puffed up. I've borrowed a phrase from others from years ago, and uh, we, I like to refer to ourselves as recovering Pharisees, right? It's always so close. It's just right there if we want to jump back to it. Because it's our humanity. It's in our DNA. In fact, when Jack Miller asked Van Til that question, Van Til began to share with, with his colleague Jack Miller how pride was his besetting sin. Now, this is fairly late in Van Til's life. He has been an esteemed professor and, and author over decades, he walked with the Lord for decades, taught the Bible, believed the Bible, and yet he was still struggling with pride. And I'll tell you honestly, in my observation now, I hang out with Reformed people and in Reformed churches, but it seems like Reformed believers in particular seem to struggle with pride. In fact, in an issue of Table Talk, Gene and I have been reading Table Talk for for decades now, and uh, an author referred once to a, a personal friend whose ministry was to reformed pastors. I don't remember what that was, but he said this. His grievous ob- the, the author wrote, his grievous observation is that reformed ministers are the proudest and most hardened group of men with whom he has ever worked. How can that be? And yet I've observed similar things. I've seen pride in my own heart way too much. And so we, we need, each one of us, need, we need to guard our hearts 
against pride because pride is contrary to faith. Pride does not look at another for righteousness. Pride looks within, right? Like the Pharisees for righteousness. A proud person doesn't need a Savior. A proud person depends upon his own righteousness. He thinks, everything's about me. It's all good with me. I'm okay. I'm not sure about you, however. And so the proud person's Well, they're proud of the things they do, right? They boast the things they do, like that rich young ruler. All these things I have kept from my youth. Oh, really? You know, he keeps a mental checklist of all of his strengths and and then a checklist also of other people. Why they are so foolish, so incompetent, so stupid. Okay? I'm going to show my age again here, but... I'm younger than some of you. But remember the movie, My Fair Lady? That was a great film. And at one point in the film, the professor was very frustrated with Eliza Doolittle. And he sang this wonderful, wonderful song. Why can't a woman be more like a man? What he was really saying was, why can't she, why can't Eliza be more like me? Come on, why can't she get her act together and be like me? Well, that's a Pharisee, right? If only others could come up to my standards. If only others would be so good looking and so talented and so perfect as I am. This world would be a mighty fine place to live. If only my spouse would get his or her act together. If only the elders of the pastor would get there. If only my kids would start behaving. Come on, really. If only they would be more like me. That's a proud person. Notice verse 5, where Paul says, He sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Of course, that's one of the tempters, one of the evil one's chief strategies to to turn someone away from the Lord if they seem to be following the Lord. Adam, uh, the serpent, the tempter, came after Adam and Eve, right? Straight away. How? With regard to their faith. Adam and Eve were called, of course, to live in the Garden of Eden by faith. Believing God, believing His Word, listening to God, walking with God, obeying God's Word. And the evil one came to them and tempted them to turn away from God to whom? Well, to themselves. He said what? You will be like God. Don't need to serve this God over here. You can be like God yourselves, knowing good and evil. You don't need God. You can follow your own way. And so He's always tempting us to live in our own righteousness. We don't need to live in strict adherence to God's Word. You can live for yourself. You know, it's your life. Live how you want. It's your brain. Think how you want. Do what you want. The adversary came after Job. And he presented, or rather God presented Job as one who fears God and shuns evil. Job's like, yeah, yeah, right. You put a hedge around him. You block him all in. You protect him. Look at his prosperity. Look at his health. He's got everything. 
No kidding he serves you, really? And so Satan afflicted Job to tempted him to turn away from God. Even as Job's wife said, Job, curse God and die. Be done with this God. This is no good. Okay? Jesus was tempted by the evil one as well. But when he was, he showed that we must always live by faith. We must always believe God. Three times the evil one attempted, tempted Jesus. And three times he said, it is written. I believe God's word. I will follow God. I will keep God's word. And Peter was writing, perhaps thinking about Satan's temptation of, of Eve and Job and maybe Jesus. He said, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. That's still true. Satan is around your life. He's around your family. He's around this church, seeking whom he may devour. Paul said, or rather Peter said, resist him firm in what? Your faith. Firm in your faith, believing God's word, believing God. It is written, and I will walk by this book. Okay? We live by faith alone. Because there is no other righteousness. Human righteousness, common righteousness, people's righteousness is no righteousness at all. Martin Luther explained why. He said, human righteousness seeks, first of all, to remove and change all sins and to keep man intact. To keep self intact. He says, this is why it is not righteousness, but hypocrisy. Human righteousness, or deed righteousness, or law righteousness, is a pursuit, ultimately, of oneself. But faith is a turning away from self. It's a self-denying action, a self-crucifying action. Faith and repentance are closely related. Both involve a turning away from self to God. That's so we need to ask ourselves, what is in my heart? Really? Because I don't know. I might know my heart to some extent. I don't know yours. What is in your heart? Is it really the pursuit of Jesus? Is it really the pursuit of God's glory? Or is it out of some sort of self-interest? Or some sort of cultural conformity? Or some other reason? Okay? What am I really seeking? Am I seeking my own way? My own agenda? My own prosperity? Okay, my own preferences and loves. Or am I pursuing Jesus? Am I pursuing His way and His exaltation is solely Deo Gloria, really my heartbeat? So are you seeking Jesus with a self-denying love and an honest repentance? If you are, that's great. That's great. The problem is we keep turning back to ourselves. 
I call ourselves recovering Pharisees, like the alcoholic that always tempted to go back to that bottle. So we are tempted to go back to law righteousness or human righteousness. But see, to believe the gospel, to be a believer, is to renounce all human goodness. It's to eschew human effort. It's to trust exclusively in Christ as someone who has no self-reliance. I've been broken of my self-reliance. I've been broken of my self-trust. I've been broken of my pride. I know that I am just a sinner. Okay? I have to be like one who, who stands up in an AA meeting and says, I am a sinner. I cannot fix myself. To believe is to know that your heart is desperately wicked. The prophet Isaiah said, Woe is me. Woe is me, for I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. No human work, no human righteousness can please God. Nothing in my hand I bring says the hymn, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. If you are honest, can you say, as Van Til did, that you also struggle with pride? That you are still too full of pride? Or maybe I should ask your spouse or your kids or your close friends, right? Because sometimes what looks like faith or righteousness is really a sort of a pseudo-faith, a false righteousness. It's not faith at all. and It's not the righteousness that Jesus requires. He said, your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes of the Pharisees. Obedience, law obedience, is not going to cut it. Strong faith is to live with a self-abasing love. Jesus said, whoever does not take up his cross. And what was a cross? A cross was an instrument of death, a terrible instrument of death, a terrible punishment. Okay, Whoever does not take up their cross, pursuing self-crucifixion, Jesus said, is not worthy of me. Is not worthy of me. See, justification is a free gift. It is. But it involves a death. And you say, well, sure it does. It involves the death of Jesus. It does. Absolutely. Without the death of Christ, there could be no justification. But it involves another death as well. I just mentioned it. It's me. It's the self. Just look back to Second Corinthians chapter five. Verse fourteen. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this that one died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who for their sake died and was raised. The reason you can't please God by 
obedience to the law is because you can't keep the law. I can't keep the law. See, each one of us, we must go home, stare at our face in the mirror, and say, mirror, mirror, on the wall, who's the greatest sinner of all? And hear that mirror say, well, that's easy, Mike. You are! You are the chief of sinners. See, like Isaiah, we must say, woe is me, I'm ruined, that we might forsake all self-righteousness and trust in Him alone. Jesus said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Do you want a strong, healthy heart? So you must be so thirsty, so parched from drinking from the dry well of your own righteousness that you flee to Christ, sick and tired of self and desiring the water that He alone gives because true righteousness never comes from within. It's always from without. It's always what theologians call an alien righteousness. It's not from within. It's from outside. The Samaritan woman who came to Jesus, who who met Jesus at the well, rather, she understood this. And when Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water, the well water, will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty forever. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And that's what the, the presence of Jesus in us by faith, the presence of the Spirit of God, becomes this fountain of water springing up. Okay? So, think about those in your lives, especially your family, okay? Get them in your mind. Some are sitting right next to you, right? And let me ask you the question. So, are you one who sucks the joy out of their lives? Or are you like a well of delicious water that refreshes them? If you really want to know, ask. Ask. You might, want, might not want to know the answer to that, however. But know this, that human righteousness makes us joy suckers. Legalism, pharisaical righteousness makes us joy suckers. But Christ's righteousness received by a grateful spirit in faith and repentance makes us gentle and gracious and kind. Okay? Faith is self-denying. Because faith embraces the reality that I'm a desperate sinner and I can be fixed, I can be saved, I can be healed by Christ alone, right? What did Paul write to the Galatians? You know this well, probably. But through the law, I died to the law that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. So how did Paul strengthen the faith of the Thessalonians? By preaching the gospel to them. By showing them their absolute need for the righteousness of Christ. And that's not received by law. 
It's received by faith, which our standards call defined as accepting and resting and receiving Christ alone. Human righteousness and the righteousness of faith are contrary to one another, and they have contrary effects. Human righteousness is a life destroyer. It's a community destroyer. Faith is opposed to that, builds up and gives life, because by faith we access the life of Christ. Faith is simply the hand of the beggar, reaching out and receiving the gift freely offered by the benevolent giver. There's no merit There's no goodness. We can't say, you know, I deserved that. I've earned that. No. The gift is just received in a spirit of humility and brokenness and gratitude. But human righteousness brings death. It's the opposite of Goldfinger. Everything he touched turns to gold. Everything they touch turns to death. Okay? Everything is harmed. And it's the destroyer of the community, of family, of church, of, of work, of, of, of any place. Wherever pride and self-righteousness are allowed to live, community will be harmed. James said, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every evil practice. Human righteousness can look like faith. It can look like belief. It can look like godliness. But it will destroy a church, a marriage a family. And so we must kill it in our hearts by real faith, by trusting in Christ alone, which is always coupled with a deep repentance of pride and all sin, a, a turning away from self. So how is it then with your soul? Are you taking up your cross? Are you putting to death selfish interests? Are you humbling yourself before God? Are you humbling yourself even before your family and your friends and your fellow church members and others? Are you resting in Christ alone? Are you trusting Him with your very life? Especially when things are difficult, when there's opposition, when there's afflictions, when there's struggles, when there's challenges. Because then your faith is strong. And it's well with your soul. But the evil one wants you to turn away from God and He'll give you what seem like, like really good reasons. So do what Peter says. Resist him. Resist him. Repent. Part of our resistance is repentance. Repenting of pride and selfish interests and selfish pursuits that remain in our heart. And watch out for that hypocrisy. We all are prone to it, okay? It's not just a few. It's not just the one to your right or your left or in front of you or behind you. It's all of us, okay? Watch out. For hypocrisy. The problem is, we don't know about it, right? Someone said hypocrisy is like bad breath. Everyone knows you have it, but you. So ask someone who knows you well. Notice Paul's prayer at the end of this chapter. May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you, that you may that He may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before God, our God and Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all His saints. You will abound in love. Only you will abound in humble faith because only true faith humbles the self-righteousness of pride. So do we want a strong community? 
Do you want a strong family? Do you want a strong marriage? Do you want a strong workplace? That's going to happen only as we reject all human righteousness and trust in Christ alone. Only then will we have the peace and refreshment of living water flowing through our lives and communities. Amen. Oh Lord God, forgive us of our sins. So Jesus, let us believe You and follow You and seek You with all of our heart. Deliver us from pride. Deliver us from the temptations of the evil one. Let us not be snatched away. Let us not be deceived. Not one here, not even the smallest child of God. But let us be determined to seek first the kingdom of God and the righteousness which is by faith. Thanking you for all the good gifts you give. In Jesus' name, amen.